Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to today's webinar, Preserving Life in a Global Pandemic. My name is Katie Gorka. I am director of the Fulner Institute's Center for Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. This webinar is the second in Heritage's Faith in Crisis series. At the Fulner Institute, we explore ideas around America's founding principles and how during times like this, faith communities have a unique and critical role to play. You can find on the Heritage website our first webinar called Faith and Hope During Crisis. This was an exciting conversation about how faith communities are responding to the coronavirus. This has been such an odd and extraordinary time for all of us. I, for one, have been so blessed that both of my children, now in their early 20s, have been at home throughout this crisis. This was precious time with them. I wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's highlighted for all of us that family is a precious refuge. I pray that in spite of the difficulties of this time, others as well have grown in their appreciation of the preciousness of life and of family. And while many have forecasted a baby boom in the winter and spring of 2021 as a result of this crisis, it may equally bring about a spike in women seeking abortions. So today's conversation is vitally important. With that, I'm very pleased to turn the microphone over to my colleague, Melanie Israel, from the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. Melanie will be moderating today's webinar. Over to you, Melanie. Thank you so much, Katie, and welcome to everybody who was able to join us today for this very important and timely webinar. Um, I want to go over a couple quick housekeeping items before we dive in to this panel. Um, first of all, we welcome your questions at the conclusion of our panelists' presentations, and so please do submit those using the Q&A box on the upper right-hand corner of your screen. And it's very helpful for you to identify yourself, let us know where you're from, um, so that we can get a better idea of um, who you are and who's been able to join us today. Um, again, this is a very timely conversation. We know that there are a number of challenges facing the pro-life movement right now, but we also know that there are a lot of things that have been encouraging about this um, new normal that we're all living in. And so I hope that today's panel provides us a good opportunity to discuss and acknowledge those challenges, but also think forward and look to the future. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and quickly introduce all three of our panelists. 
we're very pleased to have Ken Connolly, a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, join us today. He plays a key role in their Center for Life. His primary focus is on ensuring that medical and allied health practitioners can deliver professional and compassionate care without violating their deeply held personal beliefs. We also have Brian Fisher. He's the president of Human Coalition. He's a business leader, author, speaker, and he co-founded Human Coalition in 2009. Um, he turned that into his full-time vocation in early 2012. Human Coalition is a vertically integrated, centralized national rescue system for preborn children and their families. And so they own and operate women's care clinics across the country and they use really innovative marketing, data analytics, um, compassionate care and social services to rescue children from abortion while also providing support for women as well. And then finally, we have Katie Glenn. She is the Government Affairs Council at Americans United for Life. They are one of the premier national pro-life organizations here in the country. And her work focuses on legislation, enacting pro-life laws at the state and federal level. And so in her role, she works very closely with legislators, pro-life, pro-family groups, and other allies. She writes and testifies on all kinds of different issues um, across the spectrum that Americans United for Life works on. And she also helps to edit their annual publication, Defending Life. And so I want to go ahead right now and invite all three of our panelists to join me on screen. Wonderful. And with that, um, I want everybody to just, again, feel free to submit those questions to all three of our wonderful panelists. Now you're able to put a face to a name. And um, now the rest of us are going to go ahead and back off. And Ken, we're going to kick things over to you. Well, thanks, Melanie. I appreciate the introduction. And it's good to be with you. I know this might look like it's a hostage video, but uh, Coronavirus has its uh, its imperatives, and I had to turn a closet into an office, so I am fine. There's no need for any 911 calls. Um, there's obviously been a flurry of litigation surrounding the pandemic, and I'm going to try and give you a quick thumbnail sketch of how that uh, litigation's played out in the uh, as it pertains to abortion and other rights that are implicated in the abortion debate and battle. Uh, quick disclaimer: again, I'm going to try and hit the the, the high points. Uh, the main key holdings of some of the key cases that we've seen, but I'm not going to go deep into the procedural history. Um, as many of you know, uh, this this pandemic has changed day to day, not only our lives, but in the courts. So to try and hit the convoluted procedural history, I'm going to put everybody to sleep early in the morning. At least it's early here in, in Arizona, and I have no intention to do that. Um, the basic conflict, just to get started is in these cases, you know, whether abortion is to be considered an essential or non-essential service, because non-essential services have generally been postponed by most governors in their state orders to preserve PPE, personal protective equipment, and to preserve hospital space in the event the coronavirus overwhelmed hospitals. Um, and then the next question, of course, is depending on the answer to that question, is abortion essential or non-essential, what happens to other rights that are implicated in this debate? What happens to the right to peaceably assemble? What happens to the right to free speech? What happens to the right to free exercise? Those types of things. How do they stack up, in other words? Abortion supporters have taken the position that abortion is a fundamental right, that's no surprise, 
Um, and due to its time sensitive nature, it's always essential. Um, and courts, again, have been wrestling with this question, how to treat abortion during a national emergency like this. Is it one of many rights that can be restricted? Or is it sort of a primus inter pares or even more? Uh, is it a right that is sort of a super right that, that stands above the rest? Before I head into the cases real quick, um, quick detour, what the cases generally look at are two, two older cases. One will be probably familiar to you, and that's uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and that's the, the courts are looking at the undue burden test. Is, is the purpose or effect of these laws to place a substantial obstacle in the path of the woman um, who's seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus, right? So that's sort of the undue burden test. That's one of the tests they're going to filter all their decisions through, or at least they should be. That's what most of the courts are saying. The next case is probably not that familiar to most people, or maybe it is now. Um, and that's Jacobson v. Massachusetts. That's a, what we'd call an ancient case, I suppose, or at least a very old case from 1905, um, in which a Swedish pastor who had come from Sweden living in Massachusetts had a bad reaction to an earlier vaccine and challenged a, a mandatory compulsory vaccine, vaccination law in Massachusetts, um, basically on 14th Amendment grounds, saying this is a violation of my liberty interest. Uh, the Supreme Court denied that uh, argument or rejected that argument and said, listen, when faced with a society, society changing epidemic or threatening epidemic, a state may implement certain procedures, emergency measures to curtail constitutional rights, as long as the measures um, have at least one, a real or substantial relation to the crisis that's going on, and two, are not beyond all question, a plain and palpable invasion of rights. And within that second prong, the court said, hey, you can look to whether the regulation looks to be a pretext or whether it's arbitrary or oppressive. So having done that little detour, the first case I'll hit is the Abbott case out of the Fifth Circuit. Um, and again, most all these cases are going to come from governor, state orders, or, or health department orders that are limiting uh, services or hospital services to only essential. And then the question becomes, where does abortion fall under that you know, rubric? Um, the district court enjoined or, or granted the TRO uh, filed by the plaintiffs in Texas, and that went up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit actually granted the state's request to vacate that. So what they did was they upheld the restrictions, okay? And what the Fifth Circuit essentially found in, in a nutshell was, listen, just like Jacobson says, the right to peaceably assemble, the right to publicly worship, to travel, even to leave one's home, those can all be restricted under Jacobson. Um, and they found, importantly, that the right to abortion is no exception to that. That falls under all those other fundamental rights, right? It didn't necessarily say it's a fundamental right. What it said was that the abortion, much like these other rights, can be restricted reasonably in a pandemic. And, and the court made, 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 uh, made clear to say the district court got this backwards. The district court essentially said, hey, the Supreme Court hasn't said that there's a specific exception to abortion, therefore it continues as an essential service. The Fifth Circuit said, no, that's backwards. The Supreme Court would have to say that it's exempted, it's exempted from Jacobson's overarching hold. Um, and so essentially what happened was the Fifth Circuit said, listen, the, the, the state can, can restrict 
certain abortions and, and label them non-essential so long as it's not depriving entirely the woman of the 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 the, uh, the opportunity to have an abortion if, if she gets dated out, in other words, depending on what the, the date limit is in the state. And then for medication abortions, the court essentially let them proceed eventually because it wasn't clear, first of all, that the, that the order even pertained to those. Um, so again, to distill that this, this decision down, basically abortion can be treated the same as all other procedures and rights in terms of being able to be restricted given the pandemic. Eighth Circuit came to a, to a similar uh, holding in Little Rock Family Planning Services v. Rutledge. Um, they basically said the same thing that, you know, given the fact that this is not an outright ban, there are, much like uh, Texas, there are uh, exceptions for the life and health of the mother. And again, to preserve PPE and hospital space, um, an, a non-indefinite ban or a temporary ban is okay. Um, the court also made, made plain to say, it's not the judiciary's business to be second guessing the policy choices of, um, of the, 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 the legislative branch and the executive branch in these types of um, uh, crises. Those are, those are policy choices that are, that are better fit for those other two um, branches of government. Um, cases prohibiting the restrictions, or in other words, uh, saying that abortion can go on as an essential services, those basically came out of the 11th Circuit and the 6th Circuit, the 11th Circuit out of Alabama, Robinson, the Attorney General. Um, and you can see the way these, are, these play out in, in opposition to Abbott in the 5th Circuit. The 11th Circuit basically said, listen, Jacobson exists. It does give, you know, give people wide latitude to do these things, but it's not a blank check for the exercise of governmental power. Um, and what it said was, listen, some of these, this ban is going to operate as a mandatory postponement for, most, for a lot of women. And that's, that's no good. So we're going to let it continue. Um, interestingly, um, in, the, in the Arkansas case out of the Eighth Circuit, the plaintiffs who were abortion providers essentially argued that, listen, we're actually going to free up more PPE by offering and performing abortions because prenatal care and delivery actually will end up using more PPE. So by, by letting abortions continue right now, um, that's going to that's going to help the process, and uh, that was rejected in the Eighth Circuit, but but actually accepted as an argument in the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, Sixth Circuit similarly accepted that argument. That's Adams and Boyle v. Slattery. Um, they made just a, I'll, I'll bring up one, try to bring up one or two interesting things about the case cases, um, just given time constraints. But they distinguished Jacobson and said, listen, a forced vaccination. Uh, pales in comparison to having to carry, and I'm quoting, an unwanted fetus against her will for weeks. Um, and, you know, many people probably have questions about, um, you know, these other services that have been, we've heard have been, you know, hip replacements and cancer surgeries. They said that abortion is fundamentally different than hip replacement or cataract removal. Um, not only is it a fundamental right, it's part of the fundamental law, but it's extremely time sensitive. So, you can see the, the, the different ways, the dichotomy between the, the, the courts that have upheld the restrictions and those that have strict, stricken them. Um, a couple other cases, Oklahoma and Ohio, both district courts there entered TROs against the restrictions. Uh, just to round it out quickly, uh, ADF, we've had two pregnancy center cases, uh, Benham v. Charlotte and Global Impact Ministries v. Greensboro. These were cases where uh, pro-life ministries were ministering to women, praying outside of abortion clinics, 
following social distance distancing guidelines and both in both occasions were arrested. Um, we brought those cases uh, before the courts. Both seem to have come to at least a resolution on the civil side. They're able to go back to do what they're doing. But it's important to note that they were arrested at the same time that abortions were continuing apace. Uh, people were much closer, obviously, in those facilities. And Home Depots and other retail establishments across the way were going about their business as nothing had happened. So um, we can talk about those in, in the, uh, the Q&A. But that's generally the lay of the land. And I'll kick it back to Melanie. Thank you so much for that overview, Ken. I know that it's a whole lot of ground to cover and definitely quite a, a mixed bag of different decisions going one way or another. Um, with that being the backdrop of kind of what we're dealing with, of things being litigated in court, I want to go ahead and bring on Brian Fisher from Human Coalition. Um, and he'll be able to speak to what is actually happening on the ground while people are duking out these questions in the courtroom how are pregnancy resource centers and other organizations going in to do that work to serve women and children um, in those moments of crisis so brian over to you thanks so much melanie good morning everybody i bring you greetings from the great state of texas i'm excited to tell you that yesterday i got a haircut and it was a pretty momentous occasion Deeply grateful to the Heritage Foundation and for their kind invitation to be with you all today. And we are huge fans of both ADF and AUL. It's an honor to share the platform with you and them. For those of you that don't know what Human Coalition is, it's a large pro-life organization based out of Dallas, Texas. We are a vertically integrated rescue system for pre-born babies. What that means is we market primarily using internet technology to women who are high at risk to abort. We have a contact center in Dallas that takes calls from different parts around the country and serves women who are in crisis. And then we own and operate nine of our own clinics. We own and operate seven brick and mortar clinics. And then we operate two telehealth clinics. And because it is a vertically integrated, cohesive, comprehensive system, we are able to study and understand how women deal with crisis pregnancies, and we were able to test new ideas so that we can save more and more babies. So in 2010, by God's grace, we rescued 15 children from abortion. Last year, we rescued 4,124 children from abortion, and we will certainly uh, exceed that number this year. Our goal is to make abortion unthinkable and unavailable in our lifetimes. We partner with policy groups and judicial groups to do that work. But as Melanie mentioned, our goal is to be on the ground, finding women in crisis and serving them well so that they choose life for their child and so that they as a family move from dependence to independence through the love and grace of our Lord. The COVID process has been fascinating for us. On March 13th, we as an organization made the decision to convert all of our operation to telehealth. So we were operating seven brick and mortar clinics in five different states. We did shut the doors to the clinics, but opened up with full staff and full capacity on March 16th, all telehealth, meaning all 165 of our staff members working from home and continuing to take calls, referring for ultrasounds, providing social work, connecting to social services, providing life counseling. And as you can imagine, what we saw was an increase in need. So when we converted to 
telehealth, I'll just give you some quick statistics. In the six weeks prior to converting to all telehealth, we had a volume of almost 16,000 calls into our call center. In the six weeks afterwards, that call volume jumped to almost 24,000, a 48% increase in calls from women who were in some sort of crisis. And in that market that is high at risk to abort, those women who have already made the decision to abort, who are attempting to find an abortion and we wanna intervene and have a loving, compassionate conversation, that population jumped 20% in the same time frame. I want to give you a brief story of how this sort of love and compassion and boots on the ground care affects real people. We had a client, we'll call her Rachel, who was 11 weeks along in her pregnancy during the COVID crisis. And she was online looking for some information and she found us and she called our call center. And during the call, she mentioned that she was unsure whether or not she was going to keep her baby because she was very concerned about COVID and the economic impact on herself and on her family. Her boyfriend wasn't supported. She doesn't have insurance. She needed material assistance for simple things. She didn't have a job and she was worried about losing her current housing situation. So our nurse talked to her, we counseled her, and then we immediately connected to her with one of our social workers. And through the process that Human Coalition has developed and in partnership with fantastic pregnancy centers, churches, care workers, government organizations across the country, we were able to connect her to Medicaid, a doctor referral, other agencies to assist her with her current children, dental appointments, further housing resources, childcare, and we helped to find her a job. We found her a stay-at-home job so that she could support her family. We even drop shipped supplies directly to her door so that she could take care of her needs. And because of the tangible care and outreach that the pro-life movement is providing, Rachel chose life for her child, along with thousands of other women that are going through similar circumstances. In conjunction with great policy work and great judicial work, it is essential that we have systematic, well-documented, compassionate, loving, comprehensive care for women who have needs. And at this time during COVID, as you can imagine, the needs are that much greater. I'll just close on this one note. Our great national medical director, Dr. Scott French, just published an article yesterday on the Heritage Foundation site, The Daily Signal. I hope you catch it. He, as a medical professional, argues against considering abortion as essential health care. We at Human Coalition believe that abortion is the opposite of health care. And our job is to serve mom and baby so that both not only survive but thrive. And I think you'll be blessed by his article. Thanks so much for giving me some time today. Melanie, back to you. Thank you so much for that, Brian. Um, and there's one uh, data point that I just wanted to point out for people yesterday to kind of drive home exactly the type of work that Human Coalition is doing right now. Um, I follow you guys on Twitter. And yesterday you tweeted that 12 babies were rescued from abortion, bringing that to a total of 16,414 babies rescued to date. Um, and I, I know I'm referring to that as a data point, but it's really so much more. Those are precious lives that are being saved. Um, I have no doubt that there will be more saved today and tomorrow and the day after that. So thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing. Um, I'm now going to go ahead and invite Katie Glenn from Americans United for Life to join us. Hi, Katie. 
Um, and I'm going to kick, kick things over to Katie. One of the other challenges that we've been seeing has been this push on the pro-abortion side to advocate for loosened restrictions on chemical abortion and um, some really dangerous ideas about telehealth in that context. And so Katie will be able to provide us some additional context on that and a little bit of background of how policymakers can respond to those threats. So Katie, over to you. Well, it's so great to join you today. And uh, thank you, Melanie and the Heritage Foundation for having me. Um, I do want to start off by saying, in general, I am totally a fan of telehealth when it's appropriately used. And we just heard Brian talk about how they've been able to help women and help babies using telehealth. So remember that as you hear me bash telehealth for the next couple of minutes. Um, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, abortion activists have seized this moment to push for loosening up of chemical abortion regulations. And what they wanna do is use telehealth to send abortion pills through the mail. Far from this being the choice they usually talk about, they've called elective abortion sacrosanct, they've called it the pinnacle of essential healthcare, and Gynuity Health, which is the leader in abortion drug trials, is ready to go. They've, de they've developed what they call a sample protocol for providing medication abortion without any routine facility-based tests, either before or after treatment. So what that means is completely at-home abortion without any of the current safeguards in place. And Planned Parenthood's acting CEO, Alexis McGill-Johnson, calls this the silver lining of the pandemic. And she stated that Planned Parenthood and many other health providers have actually been able to really lean into telehealth infrastructure and provide service. And much as telehealth abortion would financially benefit Planned Parenthood and Gynuity, the proposal's not medically sound at all, and it places already vulnerable women at an even greater risk. So this morning, I really wanna focus on three big questions. What is chemical abortion? Why can't it be done safely at home through telemedicine? And what can lawmakers do about this? When we call the chemical abortion pill, you may have also heard called medical abortion, is actually a regimen of two drugs, mifepristone and misoprostol. The woman takes mifepristone first, almost always at the clinic directly from the doctor, and it blocks progesterone, which breaks down the uterine lining, ending the pregnancy. She then later takes misoprostol at home, which causes contractions and she delivers the deceased fetus. Abortion activists like this method of abortion because they can call it just a pill, and it fits into their narrative that applying medical standard of care practice requirements, things like informed consent or ultrasound access are unnecessary. They're turning to telemedicine as a method of delivery because the reality is the vast majority of doctors, including OBGYNs, do not want to perform abortions. An internal study of ACOG members found that just 14% perform abortions. So this is a real problem for activists. If your position is abortion everywhere without delay, you've got to solve the problem of making that possible when most doctors won't participate. So the rhetoric of you and your doctor making this decision isn't the reality we face. And so what they're seeking is you and a stranger who you're talking to through your iPhone and this is completely policy driven by ideology. It's not driven by medicine. And the biggest reason for that is that chemical abortion is completely unsafe at home. There's no possible way to make this safe. So what Planned Parenthood is saying and what Gynuity is saying does not align with medical realities. 
Before obtaining the abortion pill, women must consult with the doctor in person at least once. Medical institutions are in total agreement about this. The Mayo Clinic goes so far as to say that a woman is not a candidate for a chemical or medical abortion if she's unable to return for a follow-up appointment. And before the abortion, the doctor must answer two big questions. Is she a medically appropriate candidate for chemical abortion? And is she being coerced into this? Determining whether someone is medically appropriate is based on their history, which you determine through a physical exam and through talking to them. Um, and then an ultrasound, which helps determine the gestational age of the pregnancy and whether the pregnancy is ectopic. Chemical abortion pills become significantly less effective and much more dangerous for the mother further along in pregnancy, which is why they can only be used for the first 70 days. At-home abortion means gestational age is simply the woman's best guess, and the timeline is extended as she waits for the pills to arrive by mail. Chemical abortions are also ineffective to terminate an ectopic pregnancy and place the mother's life at risk if she takes them if she has an ectopic pregnancy. So for the 2% of pregnancies that are ectopic, telemed abortion is going to be extremely dangerous and ineffective. And this is completely preventable through an ultrasound. So it's a clear case of abortionists prioritizing the convenience and cost saving of at-home abortion over the safety and lives of women. The second big issue is coercion. A doctor cannot prescribe and administer drugs if the woman is being coerced by a partner, parent, or abuser. If she is the victim of child abuse or sex trafficking, most doctors are mandatory reporters and must report this to law enforcement. If a woman's abuser or her pimp is sitting right next to her as she does this video call with the doctor, how likely is she to say anything that would give the doctor any type of evidence of coercion when her abuser is sitting right there? That's part of why in many states they require that the woman speak to the doctor alone without anyone else in the room before making these determinations. The doctor must also verify that this woman will be taking the pills and they are not being obtained for someone else. Traffickers and abusers absolutely love the idea of unrestricted telemed abortion because it becomes easier to use chemical abortion to cover their crimes. And even with the current safeguards in place, around 5% of women end up in the emergency room with complications. And as often as 9% of the time, these pills don't work, meaning the woman is still pregnant. At-home abortion means there is no ultrasound and no complication management. There is no follow-up appointment, which is necessary to determine that the pregnancy has been terminated. Women are left alone to decide for themselves whether they need to seek emergency assistance and there is no continuity of care. Too often, they're also even told to say they had a miscarriage, leaving ER doctors with incomplete information to care for them. One pro-abortion emergency room doctor suggested that with the current rate of what she calls self-managed abortion, yet another euphemism for doctors abandoning patients, around 27,000 American women find themselves in the ER suffering from chemical abortion-related complications every single year. We can only assume that this number is going to increase if chemical abortion is further deregulated and takes place at home without ultrasound or any other safeguards. So what can lawmakers do? It's not all bad news. The federal 
Food and Drug Administration has long recognized the dangers inherent to chemical abortion. And that's why they have regulations in place that require a doctor to give the drugs to the patient directly after performing a physical examination. Even in states like Iowa that currently permit so-called telemed abortion, it is not a pill by mail situation. Instead, women receive an ultrasound from a tech, they video chat with a doctor who reviews that ultrasound, and then the doctor digitally unlocks a drawer containing the abortion pills and views the woman take that first pill. So what we are currently calling telemed abortion still requires ultrasound, still requires an in-person visit, and still requires a follow-up appointment. But Gynuity has made it clear that the new protocol they're pushing in light of this pandemic would drop all of those requirements and abortion activists have been lobbying the FDA to rescind its protective regulations. Many states also have laws in place bolstering the federal rules. Around 20 states require that the pills be supplied directly from the physician at the facility, eliminating the possibility of mailing pills. Several states forbid abortions in their state unless performed by a doctor licensed in that state. So the idea that a doctor based in Washington State or New York could be mailing pills to Georgia or Alabama isn't going to work. 26 states require an ultrasound be performed, which is already the medical standard of care, and the woman to have access to see her ultrasound. In the states that do not have these laws already on the books, passing robust state law is the best way to ensure that regardless of who holds the White House or Congress, women are protected from abortionists who have proven once again that they value profits over patient health and safety. Telemedicine abortion enriches unscrupulous doctors willing to pay, play fast and loose with women's health while endangering the physical and emotional health of all women and girls. While telemedicine has so many beneficial applications, especially right now in this pandemic, abortion will never be one of them. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Katie. Um, and now I want to go ahead and remind everybody, if you would like to submit a question for any of our panelists, please do so on the top right corner of your screen. Um, we've got plenty of time to really get to dive in and um, take advantage of the time that we have with our panelists. And so um, with that, I want to kick things over to Ken. Um, one of the cases that you briefly discussed towards the end of your presentation was the Cities for Life v. Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and that was the case that was involving some pro-life um, some um, pro-life sidewalk counselors who were arrested outside an abortion clinic, even though they were following the city's social distancing guidelines. And so I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about what happened in that case. We did have a question come in um, from Dale with South Dakota Right for Life, their executive director. Um, he wants to know, did they actually spend any time in jail? What's the status of that case? And then I also wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more about what was happening while he was being arrested, because it's a very um, hopeful and encouraging story that I think people would like to hear. Yes, thanks, Melanie. It's a, it's an interesting case legally, um, but it's also a great uh, ending, at least uh, in terms of, like we said, the hopeful aspect of it. Um, as far as the case itself, um, I think I may have mentioned some retail establishments. There's a Home Depot right around the corner, um, 
where factually speaking, you know, as we're putting together the complaint and all these other things, uh, as anybody who's been to Home Depots or Targets or Walmarts over um, the past couple of months, they're one of the only three or four types of places open. Uh, the idea that there's social distancing going on there, let's just say I'm a little, I'm not sanguine about that. Um, there's a lot of close personal contact. The um, as someone who used to work at a Home Depot, there's not a, you don't you don't just go ahead and move those aisles around. Um, so anyway, the point is that was happening a couple of blocks away. Our clients um, actually used chalk to make sure that they were social distancing. They completely changed their their weekly um, plan and reduced the number of people who were going to be out there. So there was no doubt in anybody's mind that they were social distancing, not to mention the fact that um, the, the, the proclamation from the county itself um, accepted them from the, the reach of the proclamation. They were allowed to have more than 10 people out there to boot on top of everything. Um, so they came, uh, they saw, and they arrested, basically, uh, regardless of what the proclamation was and regardless of the fact that our clients said, look, we're social distancing, we've limited our people, we're not, we're not approaching anybody beyond what the law permits. Um, we're simply out here exercising our constitutional rights. Um, I think David ended up spending about three, at least David did, David Benham about three hours in jail that Saturday. Um, and as far as the, the good news on that, um, it, it, one woman was seen in the mobile care unit, um, had an ultrasound and decided to keep the baby. And another woman as well, I don't think she was in the mobile care unit, but she decided um, to keep the baby as well as a result of the efforts of the people out there that day. So uh, I think it goes to show you um, you know, abortion supporters will say, well, it's an essential service, it's a fundamental right, um, and you don't need to be out here. You don't need to be talking to anybody. You don't, that, that's suspended. Well, you know, I think our position is if abortion clinics can stay open and if abortion is considered essential, the First Amendment, uh, let's just call that a, uh, that's, a that's in the actual Constitution. Uh, uh, that doesn't go on a permanent furlough just because there's a proclamation from the county related to COVID-19. Thank you so much for that, Ken. Um, and now we have a question for um, Brian. I know that you had discussed a little bit of how your model of care was able to really rapidly shift to this more online presence, telemedicine. Obviously, as we enter kind of a new phase of the pandemic response with some states opening back up, um, what do you see going forward being the new normal? Um, do you see your organization maintaining some of the processes that you changed to during this pandemic? Um, how do you kind of see integrating those changes you had to make with how you had previously done things before the pandemic? There's a joke around the office that human coalition reinvents itself every 18 months, and that's uh, fairly accurate. We have changed our model so many times as we have studied and learned how to serve women better and how to rescue babies more effectively. Uh, the joke now is, however, that we have, we've had an 18-month uh, innovation that we didn't plan <laughs> because COVID uh, forced it on us. But the answer to the question is we will not be returning to our physical clinics the same way that we left them. Um, the reason is we have been studying uh, a metric that we call speed to nurse or speed to counselor, um, whereas certainly the ultrasound and pregnancy testing is very important to counseling a woman uh, we have discovered that the faster we connect a woman in crisis 
to a qualified health professional, uh, the chances of her choosing life go up. If we can form a trusted relationship there between a pro-life medical professional and the client. And this has manifested itself in a couple different ways during COVID. Uh, we had originally assumed that that relationship would have to be formed face-to-face -face in a traditional office setting. And we've discovered that with the millennial generation, which is typically the generation that is at risk to abort, uh, the face-to-face -face interaction just doesn't have the same priority that it probably does for, for you and I. And so if, as we have studied how quickly we can get a woman connected to a nurse, we have really been profoundly impacted by those results. Typically speaking, in a traditional way of serving women, the time between when a call comes in and when she can visit with a nurse is in hours or in days. If you're in a virtual environment, a telehealth environment where your nurses are on phones and on chat, literally right next to your call agents, then that time is measured in just, in just seconds. And we've seen a drastic increase in the life decision rate. So what we are studying uh, over the next three months as we prepare to move back into our physical clinics is a hybrid model. How do we take the best of telehealth and what we've learned in terms of providing more immediate counseling through a qualified medical professional? And how do we take the best of what we do in physical clinics with our comprehensive care and merge those things together? Uh, we have a bright team of analysts that this is all they do. They study data and they come up with sometimes crazy ideas, but sometimes really fantastic ideas that we implement. And so as we roll back into physical clinics here in the next several months, uh, we'll come back again as a reinvented organization and, and we anticipate being able to serve more women and save even more children as a result. That's so encouraging to hear. Um, Katie, we have a question that came in to you um, from Anne in California. Um, she says, I've heard of a process called abortion pill reversal. Can you explain what that is and how more people can find out about this process and what does that mean during the um, COVID-19 crisis when the other side is heavily pushing chemical abortion? Yeah, thank you for that question. So um, I mentioned just very briefly that the first pill in the abortion pill is um, a progesterone blocker. So progesterone is a hormone that's needed for the development of of the human fetus. And so what this drug does is it blocks that progesterone um, and ends up killing the fetus. So this um, abortion pill reversal process uh, sort of brings that uh, progesterone back into, into the woman's body um, in hopes of sort of counteracting the um, the drug that was previously taken and like get, kind of getting the body back on track. Um, and I mean, some numbers show it's as successful as high as 65% of the time. So time is really of the essence. It's critical that as soon as the woman decides that um, she wants to try abortion reversal, that she gets uh, to a doctor as quickly as possible. So I'm really encouraged. I was Googling it again this morning and there are just so many websites. Um, some are at the national level. It's like wherever you are, put in your zip code and we'll connect you to whoever is here local. Um, some are more locally and regionally focused, but it's really about getting the woman to a doctor as quickly as she makes that decision. And then, and then getting her to a pregnancy resource center after that to determine what comes next. 
Um, but a lot of state legislators are really interested in this. Uh, we were so happy that in 2019, five states passed laws that require that as part of the informed consent process, abortion facilities tell women about this. They tell them about their options for this and, and say that you do have a choice even after you've started this process, it's not too late. So we are you know, really hoping that next year we can see even more states continue to uh, pass laws requiring that women get the information they need about this because I think we're only going to see it becoming more common. Thank you for that explanation. Um, we have a, another question for you, Ken. Um, this one is coming in from Mike in Georgia. Um, he wants to know, we've discussed a number of different cases looking at this same issue, whether or not abortion is an essential or non-essential service. And there have been disagreements among the various circuits at the appeals level. And so what does that mean going forward? What's going to happen with that litigation as states are opening up? And is this an issue that the Supreme Court is going to have to clear up at some point? Well, I wanted, I should just, just to round out my, my answer, my last question, because I think I probably left off a little piece of that. Um, and it dovetails with, with this question as well, is that, you know, as we were getting ready to file a temporary restraining order motion, um, the county basically said, uh, we're changing our policy. We're not going to come after your people this weekend. We're viewing, you know, we're, we're reinterpreting what we're saying. That's happened a lot. So uh, to dovetail with this question, um, I wouldn't expect the Supreme Court to be, to be particularly eager to jump in to this fray, especially given that it's the abortion issue with the heat on this issue. Um, I would, I would, my sense on it is that if they're gonna make a ruling, a broad ruling on abortion, it's not gonna come from a, a an emergency type case like this. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't expect a lot of these cases to have a lot of precedential staying power for a couple of reasons. Number one, as I stated in the beginning of my, my, my remarks, there are so many procedural back and forths in these cases, and there, there have been so many differing interpretations that the government themselves have offered for their orders that there'll be many ways to distinguish them going forward. So it's hard to tease out general principles. Um, if you can tease out any general principles as to how each court went and, and there are these circuit splits, it's how do they view Jacobson? In other words, does the executive get a lot of leeway um, in making policy, um, and then how do they do abortion? Is it again? Is it a super fundamental right that almost is, you know, overrules Jacobson, um, or is it one of a lot of rights? And if you're going to again, like the Fifth Circuit said, if you're going to tell people they can't leave their homes, and they can't assemble, and they can't speak, then you can certainly put reasonable restrictions on abortion. Um, but again, I wouldn't expect. Um, I wouldn't expect much to happen at the Supreme Court level at all, and I would expect these cases to basically, I don't want to say be an oddity, that's too strong, um, but it will, these are, these are one-of-a-kind cases. Thank you for that explanation. Um, I've got a question for you, Brian, that's come in from um, a man who says he is a pastor in Ohio, um, we've been hearing anecdotally that pregnancy resource centers have faced challenges when it comes to things like funding, 
um, or a number of their volunteers are in that um, age group that is more vulnerable to the virus and so they're not able to to volunteer and help out as much. Um, what do you see as being the number one most effective thing that faith groups can do to provide resources, um, alternatives for pregnant women considering abortion and supporting their local pregnancy centers as well? Well, that's a fantastic question. The Human Coalition was basically born out of the pregnancy center movement and we continue to serve the movement very carefully and uh, compassionately today. And so we have a deep heart for the roughly 2,700 centers that across, across, uh, exist across the country. Um, the answer to the question is probably more fundamental. Um, if you were to ask me what is the biggest struggle with ending abortion in America, it is it is the church itself. It is the Christian community not calculating the weight of abortion according to biblical standards. So, for example, for that, um, and Katie, one other uh, question for you before we go into wrap-up mode here. I've got a question from Sarah. Um, she's down in Florida. Um, she's been following the various federal legislative responses to the COVID crisis, so the various stimulus bills, Paycheck Protection Program, CARES Act, things like that, that Congress has been working on at the federal level. Um, and she wants to know if you could tell us a little bit about how things like the Hyde Amendment factors into those proposals. For those who are unfamiliar, the Hyde Amendment um, essentially blocks funding for most abortions under the vast majority of circumstances um, being paid for using federal tax dollars. So Katie, if you could kind of explain to us what's happened um, with that at the federal level, I think that would be um, very helpful. Certainly, and Sarah from Florida, go Gators. I'm a University of Florida alumni, so I have to say that. It's, uh, you gotta say it if you get your diploma. Um, you know, we have been very busy here in Washington, uh, even as I'm stuck in my apartment um, with, you know, bill after bill, and it looks like there's going to be another one. Uh, the House may be voting as early as this Friday on uh, the CARES Act. So the Hyde Amendment has been a huge challenge. It's something that for decades has kind of just been something we all do. It's been very bipartisan, you know, until mid the middle of 2019 uh, vice president biden was a supporter of it a longtime supporter when he was in the senate so it's become sort of a recent fight uh that we have to keep the hyde amendment in all of this legislation and certainly there's been quite a lot of resistance from democratic leadership to that but the reality is no matter what we are doing we have to make sure that american taxpayers are not funding abortions that is so fundamental and it's been something that has been a value in congress and in this country since roe v wade it's only recently come under controversy and if you poll americans it's actually not controversial outside of washington um three-fourths of americans support uh taxpayer restrictions and don't want taxpayers funding abortions so it's something that, you know, when we get a bill on Tuesday afternoon that's 1,800 pages that there's going to be a vote on Friday, we, those of us who are doing this legislative work have to dig through as fast as we can and identify all those places where there might be a Hyde Amendment problem 
Um, and certainly many of us are no stranger to this, having gone through that all with the Affordable Care Act uh, 10 years ago, that you know we just have to be constantly paying attention. One of the biggest concerns right now is related to expanding healthcare for those who have lost their health insurance due to no fault of their own because of this pandemic and making sure that as, as the government provides um, resources to people and as the government is, is helping people um, as they need it and as it's needed at an unprecedented level for almost 100 years, that we are still uh, considering life and, and pushing for life-affirming policies. So we're gonna keep doing that with the CARES Act and, and with all legislation moving forward. And, and we're really happy to have um, Senator McConnell really seeing this as a priority and, and making sure that the Hyde Amendment protections do stay into legislation that's coming out of the Senate. Thank you for that. I know it's definitely um, a lot to try to keep track of, especially when you're given less than 24 hours to review hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of legislation and look for those troublesome spots. Um, I want to go ahead and give all three of our panelists just a brief minute to give some closing remarks. We'll go one right after another. So Ken, Brian, and Katie, and then I'll pipe in with some final thoughts. Thanks, Melanie. I just say quickly, you know, even during times of crisis, I think it's been clear from my comments, you know, the first and 14th amendments uh, to the United States Constitution, they remain in season, they don't go out of style, um, they don't go out of business. Um, so even when the government tries to take steps to, to contain, uh, you know, a crisis like this or, or a virus like this, government officials are still required to respect constitutional boundaries. And they've got to strike a logical balance too. Um, people can and will work they, they can and will work within reasonable boundaries in good faith in times like this. But, you know, not to sound too, uh, um, well, when you take people for suckers, you lose all credibility and you can have the opposite effect. Not only is it not smart policy, but you breed a disrespect for the law. Um, so, for instance, if you say that people can go to Home Depot with impunity, but they can't go to church, even though they're social distancing, or that abortion is an essential service that can run 24-7, but people can't pray quietly and silently while chalked off outside, people, that's not a reasonable constitutional argument to be making. Um, and if that's going to continue to happen, organizations like ADF and others uh, will be there to help make the course correction. I think as intelligent patriots, we should be watching the world's response to COVID very carefully the entire world and certainly the United States has put an enormous amount of attention, rightfully so, on protecting vulnerable populations. Now, those of us who are pro-life are simply asking the question, why do, we, why do we put that much emphasis on one people group and not another? Why is it that we have tolerated the death of 62 million children to abortion for the last four decades and yet we have stopped the world economy for a cause of death that is tragic and needs to be attended to but is still a fraction of the death toll uh, compared to abortion. And I think, again, the Christian community is the community that has the voice here because we believe that every human being is created in the image of God and has equal moral standing and dignity. I'm reminded of the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, who said there are three stages in every act of God, impossible, difficult, done. Uh, ending abortion in the West is not impossible. The data has validated that, and all the things that we've heard today certainly validate that. 
It is difficult and it requires an enormous, sometimes Herculean effort from not a large group of people, but a committed group of people and a committed group of groups. But it is my prayer that with Heritage and ADF and AUL and lots of other like-minded groups that we will see abortion unthinkable and unavailable in our lifetimes and that God would grant us the prayer request answered that in fact we would see abortion done, ended forever in America. And I know that's your prayer too. Thanks for having me on. I'm so grateful to the Heritage Foundation and to Melanie for having this conversation because I think with telemedicine abortion, our biggest barrier is a lack of education. People don't understand what this abortion is like. Uh, they don't understand how, how hard it is on women, how emotionally taxing, the physical complications, the lifelong impact, and, and how necessary the medical standards of care are. And a lot of that's because so much of what the other side is saying is that none of that matters, that we're making it up. So I'm I'm so grateful to to be here and have this conversation. You know, uh, about a year ago, the New York Times did an article on telemedicine abortion, where a male writer ordered these pills online from India and wrote about his process of getting them shipped to his house, which is illegal. And and it just shows that when we talk about the opportunity for abuse of this system, it's right there. The New York Times wrote a whole article where a man ordered these pills who obviously wasn't going to take them for himself. And I think, you know, he flushed them down the toilet, but, but this is such a serious situation. And I think when it's trivialized or when it's seen as, as unimportant or not, not real data, that is trivializing the experiences of, of millions of American women. So I am frustrated to see abortion activists try to capitalize on this pandemic to uh, create a system that they've wanted and that defies medical understanding and, and safety standards. And, and I'm glad to have so many of you joining us so we can push back against that and make sure it doesn't happen. Thank you so much to all three of our panelists for joining us here today. Um, you can see on the slide here where you can go to find out more information about their respective organizations. I encourage you to follow them all on social media, sign up for their email list so that you're able to keep track of their respective activities. And I also want to invite everybody to go to heritage.org events and um, sign up to get updates about future webinar opportunities um, on a whole number of topics. But I do want to highlight that this webinar today is the second webinar that's part of a larger series about faith and hope in times of crisis. We've already had a webinar before this one. There will be future webinars um, that really gives us a chance to hear from the communities that are working on these issues, um, people of faith, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, all different backgrounds who care deeply about issues like religious freedom, the right to life, freedom of expression and speech, rights of conscience, all of those issues um, we're going to be exploring in the context of this pandemic. And so it's just been a privilege to get to hear from so many different voices um, and so again, I encourage you to go to heritage.org slash events so that you're able to keep an eye on those additional opportunities. And um, with that, I want to go ahead and conclude this session today. 
Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to our panelists. And again, I encourage everybody to check out their websites on the slide below. Have a wonderful day.